Major Lindsay and Africa presents Bouncing Back, conversations about resilience for lawyers. Welcome to Bouncing Back, Resilience for Lawyers. This podcast is brought to you by Major Lindsay and Africa, the global leader in legal search and consulting. I'm your host, Rebecca Glatzer. I'm a managing director in the associate practice group at Major Lindsay and Africa. In this podcast, I'll speak to successful professionals about the hiccups, bumps, bruises, and setbacks they've experienced in their careers and personal lives, and how they ultimately bounce back from those experiences to thrive. Today, my guest is Aida Babalola. She is Vice President, Employment Law at PepsiCo. In this role, she enables the organization to win sustainably in the marketplace while mitigating legal and reputational risk. She leads the team that manages PepsiCo's U.S. employment litigation and counseling on a broad range of employment matters, while while partnering closely with her HR clients and business partners to solve problems. Outside of day-to-day counseling, Aida enjoys the work she does to support the diversity agenda at PepsiCo, including actively participating in PepsiCo's Larry D. Thompson Legacy of Leadership Fellowship, a summer fellowship program for first-year law students designed to promote diversity in the legal profession and advance PepsiCo's commitment to supporting the development of professionals from diverse backgrounds. And she serves as lead counsel for PepsiCo's Global Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion function. Outside of PepsiCo, she recently served on the board of directors for Big Brothers, Big Sisters in Collin County and the University of North Texas Foundation. She's also a member of the New Roundtable, a Dallas-based nonprofit organization that drives the inclusion and advancement of African-American women attorneys through targeted relationship building, professional development initiatives, and mentoring. In her spare time, she enjoys spending time with her husband and two young children, baking and listening to music. Aida, thank you for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. In a prior conversation, you mentioned that you lost your cousin who was very close to you in 2014. Can you tell me more about that? Yeah. Um, So my cousin and I um, grew up together. We were nine months apart, um, and we've always been, we were always, you know, kind of thick as thieves. And in 2014, he um, was killed in a hit and run while, while crossing the street. It was, you know, obviously sudden. It was unexpected. Um, and at that time, it was the most difficult thing that I had ever faced in my life. That is that is terrible. Is there anything that you would want the listening audience to know about your cousin? <laughs> yeah, he was everything to me. He was my absolute best friend. Um, crazy passionate about music and physics, um, which was an interesting combination. Um, and he was just, you know, my person. He was an excellent listener and just any time that I was dealing with something difficult, he was my go-to. He was my person that I would, would talk to about things and he would always lend a compassionate ear and, you know, non-judgmental advice while keeping it real. You know, it wasn't all cupcakes and roses. He'd tell me, he'd call me out on my stuff if I needed to be called out. Um, but he was just the absolute best. He sounds like an amazing person. Um, yeah, it, it it also sounds like a devastating um, loss. And 
you mentioned that you were a fledgling attorney, you know, just in the fourth year of your practice. For the listening audience, will you tell them a little bit about what you were doing at that time in your life professionally? Yeah. So I'll, I'll give a little bit more context. I was one of those people that like always wanted to be a lawyer mm. since I was really little. Um, my parents immigrated to the States in the 80s from Ethiopia and um, when I was three years old, we were at a mall in Houston and we were on the second story of the mall, second floor. We were in a store and my mom thought I was, you know, kind of playing hide and seek with her in the aisles in the store. She didn't realize that I had exited the store, you know, quick, kids are quick, right? Like you, you turn yeah. your head and they're gone. And they're little. Well, yeah. And they're little, right? So they're they're not necessarily easy to easy to find. Well, what she didn't know was I had kind of exited the store and I was playing on the railings oh, God. that keep you from falling to the first floor. Um, but the railings were wide, and again, I was little. And so just like that, you know, in a matter of 30 seconds, let's call it, <clears throat> I fell through. I fell 25 feet oh, my to God. the first floor of the mall. Um, and you know, obviously I'm still here. Uh, it was a miracle. All I broke was like a small bone in my elbow, but all that to say, my parents sued them all. And what they were suing for, you know, for them, it wasn't about, you know, a payout or anything like that. It was to prevent this from happening to somebody else's kid in the future. Yes. Me, uh, you know, to keep a long story short, they had a really bad experience with their lawyer very bad experience um, and felt that it was in large part because they were new to this country. <clears throat> they, you know, their, their side of the story is that the lawyer essentially settled without even really telling them. Oh, so, wow. um, it, you know, I used to hear that story all the time growing up and it occurred to me that, you know, lawyers, even though we're not in the medical field, uh, if somebody's coming to a lawyer, it's because they have a serious problem that is impacting their life. Yes. And so from that moment forward, I always wanted to be a lawyer. And so I was just kind of, you know, narrowly focused on that. I graduated law school in um, 2010. I went into private practice um, in the Dallas area. And ultimately, you know, by the time we get to 2014, I was in my fourth year of practice doing labor and employment law. Um, as an associate uh, at the time that my, you know, my cousin passed in February of 2014. So that's kind of where I was at professionally uh, in my life. So you have this like essentially dream job or the job that you, you know, have always wanted to have since you were teeny tiny uh, taught and mm -hmm. hear about this terrible loss. Were you at work when you were told this or, or did you find that at another place in time? I was at home. I will, you know, it's one of those things like you never forget where you were and what was happening. And um, we had started to kind of piece together what had happened while I was at work. And then we got confirmation of what happened when I was at home. And, um, you know, immediately the, the firm that I was working at at the time was amazing. The people were amazing. Um, I immediately went home to Houston. That's where my cousin was. That's where all my family is. Um, and spent, you know, about a week there at home kind of grieving and going through all that, um, everything that comes along with, you know, the death of, of a loved one. Um, and then, and then came back to work and 
you know, that's, that was one of the eye-opening things to me in that experience, this being, you know, one of the, the hardest things that I'd ever dealt with is that the world just keeps moving, right? You, you have this terrible thing that happens to you and you feel like everyone should pause, right? Like right. everyone should just stop. Like, how are you all? How is everything continuing to function and move forward? But it does. Yes. And so it was this, I don't know, it was just a, this very surreal moment for me of like, people, you know, struggle with the hardest thing in the world. They go through difficult times, et cetera, but the world continues to turn. It just is what it is. Yeah. I um, lost my father in 2019 and we were very, very close. Um, even my I'm mom. I'm sorry. No, I, I, I share this um, simply because I empathize with that feeling. I remember feeling like, why am I doing anything? When you're in the depths, mm -hmm. that, you're in the lowest part of that grief. Um, and it, and it, it, I think with time, it does get easier. It's not that you don't grieve. I think the grieving process kind of goes on forever, <laughs> um, is my own personal. Yeah. It becomes less um, the, the, it's sort of painful, like acute is maybe the best word to say, um, where it's not right there on the surface, right on your skin. Everything doesn't make you cry. Something yeah. will <laughs> um, you know, and it strikes you at the weirdest, of the weirdest things will make you remember your loved one and feel sort of struck. Um, and I think for me personally, like some of the acute pain has been replaced with the ability to smile and feel some positivity when I think of him instead of just abject sadness. Um, but yeah. I just, at the depths of that thinking, why, why am I, like nothing seems important, like nothing. Right. I, you know? um, and it's very, it's like whiplash. So I, I I totally empathize with, you know, why am I here? Like, why am I doing mm -hmm. this? The unimportant. Um, how did you personally get to the place you are now? Like meaning from a, from a mental, emotional standpoint, were there things that helped you? Was it simply time? What helped you get to sort of a better place in sort of some thinking about him and his untimely passing? Yeah. Um, I just, I want to comment on something you said about it not feeling as acute. So, um, I, I have heard grief of a loved one described as, you know, picture there's a box inside, there's a box inside this box, there's this red button. And every time the red button is deployed, you feel pain. Mm -hmm. Imagine that inside the box, there's a big ball, like the ball takes up the entirety of all the space in the box. And so because it takes up all the space, it is constantly pressing down on that red button and you feel pain all the time. Well, I've heard grief described as over time, the ball gets smaller and smaller. Mm -hmm. And so as it gets smaller and takes up less space, it starts to ease up off of the red button. And the smaller it gets, now imagine it kind of bouncing around, rolling around the box, right? So every once in a while, it's going to hit that red button. You don't know when it is. You don't know when it's going to happen and where you're going to be, but it's going to hit and it's going to hurt, but then it's going to roll off. And the smaller it gets, the more time that you get where it's not pressing down on the button so much. Yes. Um, that was my, that was my experience. And unfortunately, so I lost my cousin in 2014, <clears throat> February of 2014. I lost my mentor, uh, my first mentor, um, who was a, a a very good friend of mine and mentor of mine from law school. I lost her a couple weeks after that. Uh, a year later, lost my grandmother. And then a month after that, lost my uncle. 
So who I was, who I was also, you know, close to all of these people. So I went from, you know, throughout my life, you know, I had losses here and there, but none as close as these, you know, were kind of hitting me back to back. And so um, the, the first step I would say to bouncing back is in that situation was acknowledging that there was something to bounce back from. You know, I think a tendency for a lot of people, certainly myself included, was to just pretend that everything was okay. Uh-huh. Right? Like everything's fine. I'm fine. I can do this. I'm strong. I'm, t- I, you know, um, that is not how it works. Right. If you're if you're imagine driving your car and your gas tank is empty, just saying to yourself over and over again, the gas tank is full is not going to make that car go. No, it is. That is a really good analogy. And it will not. That's it. And it will not. It will yeah. not. You will be stranded on the side of the highway. So the first step for me was just kind of acknowledging like, hey, I am not doing well. Mm-hmm. Um, and and part of that came from a support system. I had um, a really good mentor at work who was willing to, you know, a lot of times people are conflict avoidant, but I had a mentor at work who was willing to say like, Hey, I, I don't think that you're doing well. And he was clear, like your work product is not suffering, right? We persevere. We do what we have to do, but I can tell, I know you, and I think you are struggling. And my husband, you know, who I'd known, we met at freshman orientation. So who had known me, you know, for a very long time. And he could say, he could see, Hey, babe, I don't think you're doing well. Yeah. And so, you know, that prompted me to to go to therapy for the first time ever in my life mm. and to just to just talk to somebody about yeah. it yeah, and recognize that I didn't have the tools that I needed to, yeah. to deal with it. Totally. I mean, I think you just a couple of things that, that you said have struck me. One, that you um, the people who loved you in your life recognize that you weren't doing well and were willing to tell you that explicitly I, I, mm-hmm. I think I think that's a sign of someone's love when they can go to someone and say uh something doesn't feel right like are you okay and from the outside looking in, you don't seem okay um I'm curious about the therapy for you you know how was it without you know divulging anything that is, is certainly personal but like how was that experience for you um because I, the reason I'm asking is so many lawyers like myself um think and are taught and believe that we don't need anybody's help. You know, we're in the smartest mm-hmm. room. We're supposed to go it alone. Um, we're we're supposed to be these stoic people, these stoic warriors. Um, we're, we're sort of, you know, the emotion is sort of beaten out of you in law school in a way. <laughs> um, but not to be emotional, you need to be stoic and objective on behalf of your client or clients, right? So that you can be a zealous advocate. Um, but we're also human, and stuff happens. And so I was curious what, how you felt about doing that, like to say, oh, I need help. And I'm going to try to do this thing that I've never done before, which is to go to therapy. Yeah. In the beginning, it was hard because you're absolutely right. I was very much of the mindset of, I can figure this out on my own. Um, it's, it's really hard for me to ask for help. And, and most of that comes from a place of honestly not wanting to burden others. Um, so it helps that therapy is something that you're paying for, right? It's not like, you know, it's a service. Um, but, but, you know, I had to take a step back and, and think to myself, man, if these people that I care about, right, who have no other, they don't have any other hidden agenda other than caring for me are telling me that I am struggling and need help. And I can see that I'm not myself. 
what do I have to lose? Right? Like what's the alternative here? Mm. So I was nervous at first. Um, I just, you know, I didn't know what to expect. I had some kind of preconceived notions about it. Um, but it was really helpful. And I, you know, the, it's interesting. I think mental health has taken more of a um, has taken more of a spotlight in the last recent years. You know, particularly in COVID, because I think we all got to a point of recognizing, like everybody is struggling, right, in, in the pandemic. The kids um, are not all right. The kids are the not kids all- are not all right. They're not all right. But um, I I now think of therapy as you know the same way that you would go to a physician and get like a physical checkup mm-hmm. is the same way that we should be caring for our mental health. I wasn't necessarily there in 2014. I am there now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the experience was good. I mean, if I, I did not, candidly, I did not see my therapist for long. Um, but I, but it was because I didn't need to, right? Like we got to the, the appointments that we did have and the stuff that we worked through, right? Like, the therapist giving me tools to deal with my grief and to, you know, understand um, how I was feeling and why I was feeling the way that I was, it was effective. And, you know, the nice thing about it was it gave me tools that I, that, you know, at the time I didn't know, but that I would then be able to use for, you know, the other big, bad, terrible things that were going to happen later on in life. And, you know, part of the thing that I think was, was most helpful to me in that process was, recognizing and accepting that big, bad, terrible things are going to happen. You know, like that was the thing that was kind of jarring about my cousin's passing was that it was my first big, bad, terrible thing. Yes. And the first is the hardest one to deal with. Yes. But now when I have things that come up, I remember my cousin and I remember that that was the worst thing that had ever happened to me. And I survived. Yes. So whatever this next thing is that's coming, I will survive that too. Yes. I, I that totally, amen to that. Mm-hmm. Resonates with me. The same, I felt the same thing about my father dying. Like he had a protracted illness that went on for a very, for decades. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, decades sort of going, okay, at any moment he could die. And then the thing that I had been fearing the most happened, he died. And um, when you, figure out how to somehow come out of that, you know, whether it be through therapy or talking to friends or whatever it is it does for you as a person, I think you start to realize, okay, I am resilient. I can handle really big, bad things and life's going to keep lifing. It's going to keep, things are, <laughs> gonna keep, you know, at, that are completely out of my control um, are going to keep happening. And I'm going to, I, I'm, it gives you the tools to be able to deal with other things. And I, I, I totally agree with you on that. So you mentioned in our prior conversation um, that this event, which again took place over several years, you know, the loss of your cousin and the loss of a mentor and then the loss of an uncle, and it just kept going, um, kind of, you know, helped to shape your career a little bit and and caused mm-hmm. you want to go in house. Can you tell me a little bit about that part? Yeah, it 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 was a moment that that forced me to take stock, right? So. Um, you know, you're in your 20s and you feel like invincible and, you know, untouchable and all all the cliche things that you feel when you're in your 20s. And it was just, a, it was a reminder that I could not ignore about the fragility of life and how suddenly everything can shift and change. And, you know, I mentioned 
having been, you know, kind of one track mind of wanting to be a lawyer my entire life. And it was a moment that made me sit back and say, huh, I had this thing that I was trying to accomplish and I accomplished it. Now what? Mm-hmm. Right? Like, am I, am I continuing on this path just because it's the path that I'm on or is this really what I want to do? Right. And um, I, you know, I, I mentioned the, the firm that I was at, um, the office in particular that I was working in. I loved the people that I worked with. I loved the work that I was doing. Um, but there were parts of it that, you know, I, I didn't necessarily like. Um, the billable hour being one of them. I'm not, I, uh, billable, billing was not my strength. Working was my strength, right? Like I could knock things out. I'd work whenever people needed me to. I was super, like I did, I checked all the boxes. But um, just keeping track of every six minutes of my day, you know, was not my cup of tea. Um, and then, you know, there were there were just other things that that I thought to myself, oh, if, if I didn't have to do this part of the job, I, I I wouldn't miss it. And so then I went to this, I really took a step back and said, okay, if I continue on this path, the next, you know, quote unquote goal is partner. Is that what I want to do? Do I want to be a partner at a firm? Is that the track that I want to be on? And then so then that coincided with um <clears throat> you know, I went to this conference and, and met people that were in-house and, you know, I'm the first in my family to go to school, you know, graduate college in the U S and grad school and all the things first lawyer in my family. So I didn't know a ton about the different things you could do with a law degree. Um, and I didn't really understand what in-house practice was, to be honest. Like my first exposure to in-house practice was at the firm and understanding like, Oh, these are the clients. So I met someone that was in-house that was like a year or two ahead of me. um, And we started talking about what she did. And I realized everything that she was talking about was all the parts of my job that I love. The problem solving, being part of a team, learning one business model and, you know, understanding their tolerance for risk. Like just everything that she was talking about was the parts that I loved without the parts that I didn't love. And so that made me really consider a different path, right? Like, do I hop off of this track and hop into something else? Um, and so I, you know, I gave it a lot of thought. Um, my, the role that I'm in now, you know, I'm at PepsiCo, um, was the first in-house job that I applied for. Amazing. Um, I, it, it, I mean, it really, I just, you know, you couldn't, you couldn't plan this kind of stuff. So I just saw posts on LinkedIn wow. and I, I did, I, you know, I did my research about the company obviously. And, um, I found that they're, you know, what I saw gelled with my own kind of values and, and um, priorities and so applied. And then, you know, kind of the rest was, was history from there. And it was the best, best career decision I ever made. That's amazing. That's amazing. And mm-hmm. it's a too, um, for our listening audience, either whether you're a lawyer or if you're a young associate who has, you know, inklings of going in-house. You know, sometimes it can take years to get your, your first in-house job, um, oftentimes. Yeah competition for these roles just as there um, is for law firm roles and so um, that is quite fortuitous um, and 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 uh, gr- great fortune but also a testament to your your good work and a good, you're clearly a good interviewer um, so uh, <laughs> the, the stars aligned but also a testament to who you are as a person and and, and who you are as a lawyer um, I'm curious how, I know you manage other employees. How big is your team? I don't think I've asked you this. How big is the team that you manage in your current role? 
Yeah, um, I have uh, five direct reports. So total, uh, the entire team, about 11 people. Okay, okay. And then some are, up, you know, you're their upline versus uh, direct reports. So yes, yeah. I'm curious, you know, as a manager and as someone who made that leap from law firm to in-house, you know, how has the experiences that you've had, um, you know, with, with losing your cousin and, and loss and, and losing mentors, how does that impact, um, if at all, um, how you do this job? Mm-hmm. It does. It has a tremendous impact. Um, I, so, you know, I, I hired into the company in 2014. And when I started, I was an individual contributor. Um, and I've really been fortunate to have a, a lot of growth um, opportunities during my time at PepsiCo. And with those opportunities, I had the opportunity to learn from amazing leaders. I mean, like really inspiring people that you would, you know, kind of walk through the fire for. Um, and what I noticed in them and I've adopted in my own leadership style is I think the hallmark of being a good leader is caring about your team members as a whole, rather than just caring about the parts of your team that contribute to work. So if I have, you know, I, I try to be really intentional about being transparent with my team about the things that go on um, in my personal life, you know, without getting too detailed, I, I, you know, some of the challenges that I've dealt with in, in more recently have to do with, you know, the mental health of close family members and physical health of close family members. And, you know, kind of, I'm, a, I'm a remote caretaker um, or care, caregiver. Um, and I'm transparent with my team about that because I think it's important for them to also see me as a whole person because I think that that gives them space, right? I, what I don't want is for them to be struggling with something in their personal life and feel like they have to hide that and show up to work and cover and pretend like everything is okay when it's not, because I've been there. And I remember the permission that it gave me when my mentor, you know, when my cousin died, recognized that I was going through something difficult and demonstrated the care for me as a whole person. It gave me permission to take a step back and care for myself. So I'm really intentional about that. And so, and what I found is, um, you know, you need time to develop trust with people. But if you develop that trust, I can have really honest conversations with folks on my team that say, hey, I'm going through something right now and I need some help. And I can help, right? I can provide cover. You know, we can flex your schedule. We can cover work. We can, and what that does, now this isn't the reason why I do it, but what that does is it builds loyalty, right? It builds um trust and a sense of community within your team such that you you if you give that to people and they know that you care about them as a whole um they want to do their best for the team because they don't want to let the team down and then they are willing to cover when somebody else on the team is struggling or going through something so yeah. that's that's you know that was certainly the experience for me when my managers every time in my career gave me that space it made me want to do, to do good, right. To help them and to not let them down because I knew that they cared about me and had my back. Yeah. Yeah. 
I, I think that's pivotal. And again, amen to that. I totally agree with you um, in that way. Uh, you know, creating trust and, and, and sharing of yourself creates trust. Um, you know, in a lot of places, lawyers in particular, I, I think about law firms are, are reluctant to do that in many cases. And, and, and I think that can be sort of detrimental to forming a problem that allows your people to kind of, like you said, walk through fire for you. Um, and, and I think, I think that's key. And it's, it, it's vulnerable, right? It's vulnerable to share of yourself in that way. Something's not going mm -hmm. great. I have a family member who's ill, um, you know, we, we lawyers don't like to have chains in our, our armor. So, um, yeah, we feel like we're, we're, you know, it, it, that that's not what we're supposed to be doing. And I, I, I do feel like that's changing a little bit in our profession and I'm, I'm, I'm glad, glad to see it. You touched on this a little bit earlier in our conversation, you know, in terms of, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, um, what you think makes you resilient. And to put it in this way, I think you're resilient. I think there's plenty of evidence to show that you're resilient. Um, I was curious where you think that resilience comes from um, in terms of, you know, was that something shaped by your, you know, young years, um, you know, as a toddler? Are there people in your life that have, you know, impressed you, you know, upon you the importance or if you learn these life lessons, um, you know, in addition to losing your cousin, but prior to that, uh, was, were there things in your life that helped you, um, you know, strengthen the resilience bone? Yeah, I think, I definitely think part of it is genetics. So, um, my, my parents, um, you know, I, I mentioned they, they immigrated here to the States. My parents fled a war-torn country. Um, and saw a lot of really difficult things in their youth. Um, a lot of difficult things, you know, corrupt government and and death of loved ones and li li literally running for their lives. Yeah. And so growing up as a kid, you know, my parents didn't tell me everything when I was younger. I got like bits and pieces as I got older. Um, so to a certain extent, it was like, I don't have any choice but to be resilient because, you know, the things that I have gone through are nothing compared to what my parents experienced. I mean, truly not. I mean, and I don't mean to minimize my own personal experience and I, you know, I don't believe in kind of, you know, we're, nobody's comparing their tragedies, right? I, I don't, I don't believe in that per se. However, I, I did, I mean, I just, if I look at what my parents went through um, in their teens and twenties, to get to the point of, you know, coming to the U.S. and what they, you know, struggled to do once they got here to the U.S. to provide for me and my and my brother, um, I don't have any choice but to keep going. Like I, can, you know, I can't give up. Now the 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 dangerous aspect of that is, you know, what I talked about earlier is resilience. Though is not pretending that everything is okay. Mm -hmm. So there's a different, you know, resilience to a certain extent is a choice. It is. When we talk about this concept of bouncing back, right, even the act of bouncing involves falling, right? So you have to acknowledge that there is a fall and then there is a come up, right? If you are coming back up. So I, I think I attribute a large part of it to that. And, you know, um, so it's, it's recognized, I had to adjust though and recognize it's not pretending that, you know, not everything is okay. And then I had to develop the skills um, to bounce back, right? So things like recognizing that 
everything is not perfect, nor is it meant to be. And I actually think that this is a really important point for younger lawyers and generations that have come up in the age of social media, where what you see is these like, you know, curated highlight reels that would suggest to you that everything is perfect and filtered and this and that. And it creates this unrealistic expectation of what life is or what life should be. And my worry, you know, I, I have young kids, they're six and seven now, and they're just starting to ask me, even just yesterday, um, uh, ironically, my son was asking me about, um, you know, he wanted to post something to like TikTok. He doesn't have TikTok, like we, you know, and my daughter said she wanted to post something to YouTube. And I said, well, why do you guys want to post this? And they're like, well, I want, I want to post it so that the world can see what I'm doing and so I can get likes. So it's like, even, you know, you know what I mean? Like even these kids who don't have social media, we don't expose them to social media, they know it, they see it. And they're, you know, it's, they put this disproportionate value on likes and this, you know, so all that to say, um, I think it's really important for younger generations to hear and recognize that life is not perfect. Nobody has it all together. Everybody nope. is struggling and going through something and that is perfectly okay. Yes. Amen. And if they claim that everything's perfect, they're lying. They're lying. <laughs> they're lying. Yes. hundred percent. Yes. Amen. I, I totally agree. And I, I think that, you know, um, so much of what you said is just important fodder for, for young attorneys, particularly those who, you know, are just getting starting um, out in, in their career and they're trying to find their footing and, you know, it feels really uncomfortable for some of us. I felt this way when I was starting out as an attorney um, because you, you, you aren't, you're taught a lot of theory in law school and a little bit of practical stuff, but not how to actually do your job. You kind of have to right. figure it out. Um, and, and for many of us who are perfectionists, that is a very uncomfortable place to be in. Um, mm -hmm. You know, are other you know, sort of nuggets of advice that you would give newly minted attorneys who you just, you know, either have never experienced this kind of discomfort before or are also trying to manage that with, you know, perhaps something else in their personal and professional lives that, you know, isn't going quite right um, at this moment in time and, you know, how to, how to deal with that. I, so I would say, you know, I've come back to and emphasize nobody has it all together. And I remember, I distinctly remember starting and seeing people in, you know, very senior positions like, you know, partners and general counsels and all this stuff. Where you see that person at today is not where they started, right? Mm -hmm. So don't compare your entry point to their finishing line. Yes. It is not the same. You have not had the same experiences yet. Um, I would say don't underestimate the importance of self-care but don't misdefine self-care. Self-care is not just the things that feel good to you. Self-care are the things that you need to do to create a life that you don't need to escape from. And so part of that is, you know, part of that is having the hard conversations with yourself. Part of that is uh, really asking yourself, what does success look like to you personally? Not what, you know, not what has been fed to you about what success is. And then I think I would say um, when you're faced with a setback or, you know, a big, bad, terrible thing, <clears throat> focus on the productive questions. So like an example I'd give is why is this happening to me is a natural question. I don't think it's productive. Why is this happening to me is very different from what can I learn from this? 
what is this teaching me? Try and frame the questions that you're asking in a way that are going to be helpful to you rather than harmful to you. And then I would just say, success for everyone looks different. You know, I, I touched on this concept of like define success for yourself, but this really hits home for me when I look at my kids and I see, you know, I, they're, they're six and seven, like I said, and they are really coming into their own in terms of like, they have their own personalities and they have their own natural interests, not things that we've pushed on them, just things that they're naturally interested in. And it, it made me think back to the things that I was interested in as a kid. And I, I recognize that like, as a parent, my job, I think for my kids is to constantly remind them about, you know, who they were before the world got a hold of them and told them who they should be. And so really taking stock for young attorneys and determining what do you really want to do? Like at the end of your life, what, what things will have happened or should have happened for you to feel like job well done, you know, to myself. And that's not going to be the things that people told you you should do. It's going to be the things that are really true to who you are as a person. So make sure that you are taking time to really evaluate that for yourself as opposed to just, you know, getting on the hamster wheel and going, 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 because that's what you've been told to do. Amen. Amen. I totally agree. Um, I could talk to you for another 12 hours. Alas, <laughs> schedules will not allow it, but um, I just uh, want to thank you so much for giving me your time, being so open and honest with me and our listeners today. I, have gotten a ton out of this conversation. I know they will too. And I just want to really thank you um, for doing this with me today. Well, thank you for having me. And thank you for doing this. It's, it's a conversation that's really important, particularly in the legal community. And I'm sure that you're helping a lot of people by doing this. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Bouncing Back, Resilience for Lawyers. Join us next time for another story about thriving after overcoming challenges. You can find Bouncing Back and other programming for lawyers on MLA's Legal Talk Network.